This is our Suburb Trends Report for March 2024 and we'll be looking at what property investors need to know when they're looking at investing across the country. And in this episode, we'll be looking specifically at the rental outlook for 2024. Will the pressure ease and if so, where? Or are tenants in for another bruising year? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. This month, we've asked Kent to look into the outlook for the rental market in 2024. So Kent, can you kick us off briefly explaining how you've tackled this challenge? Yes. Uh, what I've done is a report that went out in the uh, new, through the News Limited mastheads um, a, a few weeks ago. And uh, they asked names. me to do some... Yeah, well, they asked me to do <laughs> some forecasting and I... Uh, so we, we, I forecast um, based on a, an SA3. I tried to do the model at a, an SA2, a statistical area two first. A lot of volatility. Those models don't behave too well. Moved out to the SA3. It projects a little bit better. Um, all the statistical stuff look, look pretty reasonable. That forecast out to out 12 months in advance um, using a training data set that forecasts what it was today and then using data up today to predict what it would be in 12 months' time, all things equal. What what I quickly learned was um, the the housing market is going to increase, but no, nowhere near the rate of increase uh, that the unit markets will increase, in theory, according to the model. So what I did is I took the growth rate forecast for the SA3 as the parent, then I took the current trend for the SA2, blended them together to come up with a forecast. The fascinating thing was uh, the gap between the price rise and forecast for houses versus units. The theory I have is affordability. It's that people are being crowded out of uh, houses and being pushed into units. Uh, So that's really the big driver. And probably the second piece is that a lot of unit markets are near that 20, 21%, 22% mark. So they're, they're, they're relatively affordable um, or have been up until mm. now. Now, towards the end of this year, I'm forecasting that uh, most of the capital city markets, I did my little capital city thing because I knew you would ask me, um, most of those capital city markets are going to nudge up around that 30% mark and some are forecast to go, go well beyond that. So uh, that's, the, that's the summary. So before we sort of kick on, I can see Chris has got a really in-depth question to ask and I've got <laughs> no doubt it's going to be riveting in that you're going to explain it and we, our minds are going to blow. But my brain, I'm just realising how biased I am to sales data. My brain just goes to sales data as you're saying that. So I, can I say in case the listeners are as biased as me that we need to keep sort of peppering the word. You're talking about um, affordability from a rental point of view and you're talking about rents 
rising for units at a much greater rate than for houses because the actual sales data is completely opposite. So so let's let's sort of I just want to I want to bring it back just in case oh, I might be the only one everyone else is going you know yeah Veronica we know we heard you but my brain is is it really is struggling here <laughs> to be quite <laughs> frank. Well, rents are fantastic because because they're easier to measure in that it's a percentage of household income allocated to to rent. Sure. So it's an easy metric and it's uniform. If you if the Google algorithm on YouTube picks up that you're interested in this topic, you'll see the same thing measured in the UK, the US, wherever you are. And the standard globally is 30%. That actually brings us into understanding clearly what you're what you're measuring there. Because rental data is not calculate or not gathered and calculated and reported on in the same way that sales data is. So can we sort of get an understanding of the difference there? Yes. Uh, this is based on advertised rents. There's different ways you can collect rental data. Um, there's been a few experiments we've done over the last 25 years looking at ways to collect uh, rental data, but we've concluded that the, the most robust method is to use the advertised rental rate. Uh, what I yeah. uh, have done in this particular case is measure it at a statistical area two level, suburb areas, uh, because they're slightly larger, a little bit more robust and a little bit better behaved. There are a lot of suburbs um, where you've got enough rentals, but there's a lot of suburbs where you don't, probably 50-50 mix. Whereas when you zoom out that slight level to that SA2 level, most your SA2 start to behave quite well. Um, so we're measuring advertised uh, rents. We, we, we're using a rolling 12-month median, so that makes it behave even better. So it's a rolling 12-month median, and we're measuring household income but what I've done with the household income to, to look at affordability is I've applied an index to to what it was what it was as at August 2021 with the census. So there's an indexation being applied, rounding out. That's around 20% growth of a household income since that period in 2021. So we've had indexation to the model for wages or for household income, and we've had uh, Rates increase all the way through until now, but then we've added yeah. a forecast for the next 12 months. So, Kay, are you saying that, you know, that houses' rents are likely to grow slower than unit rents, right? Um, well, or they're growing. They're all growing. <laughs> yeah, but at a they're slower rate you're expecting over the next few years. Yeah. Just the next the next year at this point in time, I'm not going beyond yeah. that 12 month, but- Yes, <laughs> in short. Yeah, yes. I mean, it makes and, sense and when you think it's... about it logically. Yeah, yeah. just because of affordability. I mean, there's a drive to home ownership, but you know, there's uh, you know, and and having more space with home offices. I mean, and you know, drive for space. But I just wonder if counter cyclical, you know, there's actually a more of a a fall in the um, number of occupancy, right? So the number of people per property actually starting to increase right so people start to say hey actually i can't afford a two-bed flat now i need a three-bed house um and or a four-bed house because i have to go back to flat sharing and you know you start seeing that happening more and more right whereas that in covid there was a flight to you know getting your own space and renting a one bed or a studio because you didn't want a flatmate um the second thing is with houses is that i just wonder if you know every time a house sells right now it's probably not going to sell to another investor you know Borrowing capacity is just so tight um, and, you know, investors are already 
struggling to enter the market because they've already got other debt, let alone enough money to then go and stretch into a house. And let alone they, do they have the you know, desire to go into a big negative cash flow, right? Because houses are yeah. growing higher than apartments. And so every time an investor wants to sell a house, whether they're dying, um, it's most likely going to an owner occupy. So I reckon it's going to get even harder to rent a house. Um, and then a lot of families are pushed out of homes, you know, and they are getting pushed. And so that, and they want to rent homes. And so there's a, just that pent up demand still there. So I, I, I sort of get the numbers and the forecast, but I just wonder if, you know, like as this, the behaviors of, you know, uh, people can't afford their rents, then they start to flat share, you know, less houses for rent in 12 months time with whether this starts to even just surprise the models, because you're right, that gap between house rents and unit rents, it's always, you think, oh, maybe it's getting too unaffordable. People can't afford it anymore, but maybe they can afford it if three friends come together now rather than a family being the typical renter. So maybe it becomes more of a dorm house rather than a family house. And, you know, typically that's not yes. what we've seen in Australia too much. Yeah. Um, we, we're seeing a lot of headlines, a lot of a lot of it at the moment. Um, I'm, I think every second story I'm reading is covering share, uh, house sharing as a standard yeah. um, because it's your only option. Uh, you Once you get above... You get some markets where the, the average uh, household income allocation to rent it's 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 up above forty percent. So in those markets, you've got a scenario where either you share or there's displacement, and that displacement means you can't afford to stay there. Therefore, you exit. Who comes in? And it's either somebody else comes in with a higher household income, which we can only really measure next census or vacancy rates go up and prices come back down to match what people can afford at the moment i've just finished a little bit of a desktop analysis before before now before this uh, podcast and there's not a lot of i was trying to test a scenario where uh, when affordability got high uh, sorry when uh, affordability got poor if you know what i'm saying above that 31 32 <laughs> percent mark for a prolonged period what happens? Does it does do listings go up or do you know what what are some of the scenarios? And we I couldn't find any pattern in the data at this stage. So it just it indicates to me that there's replacement, there's displacement and replacement, and people coming in have got more money and pushing those with lower household income out into the scenario that you just mentioned. They're either going in with family or going into house share. And I think, you know, we, we sort of, the markets are always evolving, right? So, you know, we had our 600 square, 800 square meter block and everyone had that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, blah, 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 right? And, you know, living standards having to change. I mean, I sort of can see that, you know, brothers and sisters and families and multi-generational houses, um, you know, are the way that families might be able to, you know, able to buy in the future. And also, I mean, when I was living in London, I don't know if I've ever shared this on the podcast, when I first moved there. I think there was like 20 people living in a five-bedroom house um, when I was in London, right? That's And it's quite common to be not just sharing a house, but sharing bedrooms, right? Um, That's like that and young you know, yeah, people in- TV show. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and you have, you know, so because the cost of living there, like the salary plus the rent plus the cost of living in the city, like, yeah, you had to share a bedroom. Um, and I know that not everyone would want to do that, but it's not just sharing a house. It's actually sharing bedrooms. And I think we, you know, this is potentially the direction we're heading in, right? Um, if we don't do things to solve a rental affordability crisis, people will, will make those compromises if they're forced to. And I think that's what we're seeing uh, 
yeah, better than being homeless, right? And that, that's what I think we're heading down. I think it's already happening, though, isn't it, in many places? But, you know, I think that's interesting, though, because this is unprecedented, <laughs> that word again. It's true, it's true, it's true. You know, we can look to more effect, more expensive markets across the world, and, and obviously London is well known for having very expensive real estate. Um and I've never lived there, so you've you've had that lived experience, Chris. I mean, I know I've seen uh, there's been certain parts of um, Surrey Hills, for example, when I was first in real estate, or first as a buyer's agent, and right down the bottom of the rag trading end, and there was lots and lots of students living in these houses, and you'd often go in them, and they had bunk beds in the bedrooms, and there'd be four people sharing a room. Now they were students, but I guess that's what you see happens with when you've got affordability problems, right? I I reckon some of these were shift beds. <laughs> As well, you know, it's like somebody works at night and then somebody works at day. I mean, that's that's really an extreme, but you know, but but going into these houses where you've got you've got sixteen people living in a four bedroom house, you know, it's pretty shocking. Um, but it's not unheard of. And I guess if we do have to point to look look to other other cities where perhaps this has long been a problem. But I think that it's interesting about the house and the unit divide, and I agree with you, Chris. I think that the signs are, for lots of reasons, and the reasons that you pointed out, and, and land tax is another one, that it, you know it's more mm. and more uh, unattractive, certainly for new investors to buy houses. Um, old investors, if they've got enough equity and they're not paying a mortgage, perhaps might hold on to it as being great assets, uh, if they have great assets. Um so you're not going to be seeing, yeah, more. You're not going to be seeing an increase of investors typically buying houses. That's been the case in Sydney for some time. I would hazard in Melbourne probably has as well. And as Brisbane becomes more expensive and other cities follow suit, then that's going to be the case. But I also, it's interesting because um, you talk about units and and you you you're careful to say that's just for this year. And I get why Kent, because obviously with more supply, we're going to see downward pressure on rents in the unit space, that's for sure. Um, but what else, you know, what else are you seeing? Can you interpret anything else from the data or are we just got a hypothesis at the moment in terms of what people are doing and where they're moving? And you said there's no pattern in the data. Is there anything that is different that is measurable? Well, the, there's certainly consistency in that first uh, component part of it that is it, we're seeing substantial increases in, in uh, rates but for units across the mm. board. There's a couple of geographical standouts here, and I'll just focus on the capital cities for a moment. Um, yeah. Forecasting 0% increase in house rents in Hobart. So that's quite interesting. Right. And a 12% increase in, in, in the unit rents. Um, but what's probably the most interesting metric of all of the capital cities is the affordability of units in Hobart, and that's at around 19% of household income. So if you're doing it tough trying to rent in any other capital city and you want a bit of a change, I'd eyeball Hobart, Hobart. as a viable <laughs> option. Absolutely. So so right. that's a, that's, pro that's probably the, the standout. Um, the other one is uh, the, the affordability uh, ratios are getting into very high percentages. So we're looking at you know, Sydney houses up around 39% of household income at the end of the year on average. So as a result of that affordability metric, it's likely that the only there's two scenarios to play out. Chris, you covered it. House sharing or you're being displaced and replaced by a wealthier family. Um, so that that change to Sydney 
has a lot of the um, pattern about it of San Francisco in that suddenly it's a place for rich people only and good luck finding a barista or somebody to pack your shells at, at, at the local Coles or, or Woolies. So, so that's, a, that's a scenario in Sydney and units are forecast to accelerate with their rental price increases and get to a very similar level of affordability uh, at around that 37% mark based on this model. Models, you know, I think we all know these models have their limitations, but um, uh, we, should, said, yeah, we should probably preface it by saying <laughs> when we don't like to forecast on this podcast, uh, but yeah, here we yeah, are. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, uh, it's it's a it's a trend line that's been pretty consistent. So I, I've been looking at it mm. over the last fifteen months, and it's like, okay, could it continue at this rate for the next twelve months? Mm-hmm. And at this mm. point, because supply levels are so low and population yeah. growth has been so extraordinarily high. Uh, I, I think it's a fair assumption to say that that trend is going to continue. What about other cities? Tell us. Yeah, so I'll go down the list. Um, so Adelaide, I've got houses jumping by 13% in the model, units by up to around 30%. Um, but with units in Adelaide, they'll still be, at, even at that increase, they'll be around 26% affordability. So when the affordability is, is still quite low or acceptable, I have a, a little bit more faith in that forecast or that prediction. When it gets above the 35% mark, my confidence goes down. Um, ACT- And that's because uh, the market doesn't necessarily have the wherewithal to sustain th- that growth. Is that, is yes, that what you're saying? Yes, that displacement replacement theory that I'm, 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 I'm trying to build a model around it to test it, and, um, but the theory is- uh. Uh, if you're in a, if you're in an area where um, you're it's 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 no longer affordable for you, but you're in the you're you're in a, an area where the household income is very low in comparison to the neighbours, it means the neighbours can move in. So, yeah. an example of that crude example would be if I'm in a suburb and I'm at the lowest ebb, or you know, comparison to the rest of the SA three, for example, if I'm in one of the lower household income suburbs. Uh, it means that I could be forced out by higher-income neighbours, and that that can be right. measured and modelled. Uh, so I haven't haven't built any sophisticated model for that yet, but that's the theory that um, the areas that the suburbs that do hit that thirty-five percent mark and higher, um, that could still spell ongoing rent increases if they are in that situation. Cat, I mean, what we're sort of seeing from an investor point of view is um, absolutely investor numbers are going back up. Um, you know, there's an appetite for people who have got equity, who have got a bit of a buffer, who have got, a, um, you know, good incomes. It is unfortunately very highly um, skewed to people who are on higher income, mm-hmm. unless they've got very, very low debt compared to their income. Um, yep. And usually those people who've got very low debt to their income are usually higher incomes. Um, so uh, they're, they're, they're at a point where they're going, Oh, you know, rates are likely hitting peaks. Oh, I do need to buy an investment property. I know I've been doing do it for years. Maybe I should get in before rates come down. Like that's that's kind of what their mindset's thinking. I, I need to do this, and um, the house prices have built a bit of equity because you know the houses have gone back up in price a bit over the last 12, 18 months, and they've paid their mortgages down, you know, over the last five. So they've got this equity. They've got this buffer as well. 
and they've got a, enough borrowing capacity to go and buy an investment property. Now, some have got a great borrowing capacity, but a lot of them don't. Um, and so they are entering, but I would say that a lot of the investors are entering on the lower end side um, and they're wanting to, because uh, they haven't got much capacity, right? And they're a bit worried about yeah. cash flow, to be honest. And I wouldn't say we're not encouraging this. I'm just making it clear, but that's what we're seeing. That's their mindset. However, yeah. on the other side, we get, we're absolutely seeing our clients who have got investment properties uh, are selling. Um, yeah. And, you know, people article that we did, uh, or not an article, an episode, that went absolutely nuts on YouTube, to be honest. Nothing we've recorded yeah. or published has gone anywhere near that amount of views. I know. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it was like 50,000 or something, our last time I looked Crazy. at it. Um, and um, the that really hit, that must have really hit a nail in, you know, why, I don't know why it was so viral. But, you know, that episode hit really highlights. Yeah, why um, nerve now? So we'll go with the nerve. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but I think why did that? And I think because it is the truth. It's what investors are absolutely doing. And, you know, if you're like that replace, displace uh, theory you've got there, yes, more investors are entering, right? And you can see investor loan growth is, is yeah. getting stronger. And, you know, we can see that on the ground. We can see the appetites change, see uh inquiries changing like these are these are leading indicators of what's going to happen over the next few years so we think the investors yeah. will be really strong as rates fall and i reckon they'll push out first home buyers um in a lot of areas because they've usually got a bit more uh cash and borrowing capacity uh but i don't reckon they're replacing the investors and so in these models are you are you factoring in like rental listings starting to decrease because if more investors are buying than first home buyers, right, and investors are selling, how does this sort of going to affect our sort of supply numbers? Yeah, I saw um, a slight dip in listings, but it's not been significant enough to make a call on at this uh, point. So that was only okay. half an hour ago where I was looking at the the averages uh, month on month on month over the last six months, and I. I saw a couple of little periods there that could have been seasonal. So I, I, I've not seen sufficient evidence to make a call or, or a judgment on that at this stage. And the only other element of that is that, you know, usually what you'd say is, okay, there's all this uh, investor stock coming, right? Because there's all this high density stuff that we've been building that's all going to come on, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, those towers aren't going to be for investors. You know, a lot of the new stuff that's getting built now is, um, not so. There are obviously still high density pockets, but I reckon those developments are slowly finishing. There's not like new ones have been able to get the sales. Um, but the high density stuff that is coming is more down to the downsizers, right? It's more the higher end because that's the only stuff developers can build because it's the only stuff they can make margin on. And so I don't think there's this. If investors keep bailing, it's not like we're going to replenish this with lots of new high density apartments over the next five years. It's it's a lot of developers just can't make money on that stuff. Um, no, and, and so and, that's going to be another issue. Seven and eight hundred thousand dollar plus units don't solve rental affordability problems. No, <laughs> they don't. Not if I'm expecting well, a three yeah. three and a half percent yield. The yeah, and the build yeah. to rent stuff is is very infancy, right? Um, you know the the developers aren't you know just trying a few projects here and there, and I think the the pipeline for that is like. 30,000 at best at the moment. Um, and when you've got 11 million dwellings, it's such it's, a yeah. drop in the ocean. Not not enough. I mean, it's it sounds crude, but uh, more than five, probably more than 6% of people in the US live in 
village and mobile home parks and less than one percent of us less than one percent of australians living in uh, caravan parks so if you want a fast solution you want a low-cost solution there is a sort of solution at hand and you could use government land and do a leasehold and you could really rapidly roll out something that's affordable uh, that's deliverable because of prefab and it doesn't need to be a low quality it can be a high standard so there are options but we keep on going back to the same you know, looking for the a, a solution using the same things that we've done for the last 30 40 years and i listened to a very interesting podcast by the prefab manu- manufacturer called icon uh, i-k-o-n in the United States, and uh, he he made a really interesting statement that the founder and he said, you know, if we are looking to manufacture and produce houses in the same way we have done for a hundred years, uh, prices aren't going backwards. Things won't get better now. So if it's a problem, it won't get better, and we won't solve it with the same approach. So we need a radically different approach. Well, that's true, but you know, we still we seem to be not really getting any solutions from our from our governments. That's for sure. Um, no, <laughs> you know, negative gearing's back on the table, and we're we're bringing you a considered episode on that very topic in the next couple of weeks. Um, and you know, you can see that that's increasingly coming. You know, being discussed, and you think I just think at the very first thing we should do is try to stem the tide of investors selling out. Really? You know, I mean, that's something to to try to do to actually try to at least hold the amount of stock we currently have no. at that level, right? Um, that would be that would be an achievement <laughs> instead of what's happening. Like Chris is saying that um, that the amount of new investors coming in aren't replenishing, aren't replacing the ones that are aborting the system. So that's one thing. And in terms of, I mean, you've you've come up with the Nissan Hut idea many many times, Kent, <laughs> but. Doesn't seem to get any traction. Um, so, can we continue through the capital cities? Because you know we've got yes. to sort of Hobart and Adelaide, and we keep we keep talking. So let's just. So Brisbane, eleven uh, percent houses uh, up to thirty percent for units. But why I'm less uh, c- uh, confident of Brisbane is that pushes the affordability metric up to thirty nine percent. So a very low confidence right. there. Melbourne, so something's got to give. Yeah. Yes, it, and I don't. It, well, it's the displacement theory here because uh, a lot of people are moving up from Sydney. So uh, yet another one of my friends selling mm. up, living in, um, at, he's at Haberfield in the inner west. So selling up to move to a very nice suburb in Brisbane because it's affordable, relative, air quotes, affordable. It's always been a driver of migration from Sydney and Melbourne to Brisbane, that affordability piece, you know, from owner-occupier's point of view. We're not talking about tenants so much here. You know, if you can get a, a good paying job and you can you can get, you know, a job at the sort of level that you want up there, pre COVID, pre work from home, all that sort of stuff. You know, yeah. we had lots of clients that would do that over time, um, and it seemed it was aspirational in a way. If I can go there, I have a better quality of life. I mean, I'll argue that maybe you don't, but that's just because <laughs> I'm an inner city dweller in Sydney. Um, but you know, that, that particularly for families, I've got more space. I can get a house rather than an apartment. You know, my mortgage is lower. I might have. A less paying job, but I got a good job, and I'm at the point in my career where I'm not trying to climb the ladder. Then off we go, and that used to be a big drive of people moving to Brisbane. Yeah, well, I, I did the Brisbane move and then lost the job and couldn't. Yeah, you know, and that was going back a long time ago. Things have changed dramatically since then. 
Um, mm. But um, it, it was still a country town 35 years ago. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a beautiful big city now. Um, moving on, Melbourne, mm. uh, plus 15% for houses, taking up to an affordability ratio of 29%. So that's that's good. And 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 I think that's mm. been a, a hallmark of, of Melbourne for some time now. And units plus 27% going up to an affordability ratio of 29%. So, Mike, I'm feeling rather confident that that is likely to happen. Not happy, but confident that it's going to increase by that type of level. Perth uh, houses 16%, affordability 32%, so quite possible. Uh, And again, because you've got that displacement, you've got a lot of people going there, being thrust, pushed out of Sydney. So there's a possibility there that you know a household income could go up with with higher incomes, and uh, units going uh, forecast go up by thirty percent, but the affordability at thirty seven percent makes it less likely to get that high, in my view. But, um, I don't know if I've covered Sydney, but I, I'll mention it again anyway. Sydney plus sixteen percent for units going up to thirty nine percent, so it's extraordinary, cool. and and I don't mm-hmm. think that's feasible. One thing that's going to happen. Once you get above that 30% mark, the reality is there's not much money left over to go to a cafe or go to a restaurant. And you know, if you know people in the retail trade, as soon as interest rates go up, they feel the pinch. They, they know the restaurants are you know, less bookings and mm-hmm. you know, the, the, markets, the market stalls do half the trade they usually do. And I think that's a big yeah. problem for Sydney. It's going to be a big problem. You know, it's it's almost lifeless now. A lot of people say it's not what it used to be for for restaurants and vibes and clubs and whatnot. That will that will really make that situation even worse if we're spending upwards up to thirty nine percent on average uh, on rates right. and units a thirty three percent increase forecast going to thirty seven percent. So that's extreme and as i said because it's up around that 37 percent it's less or less confident so yeah yeah quite an extreme situation that's 30 percent 37 percent of household income of median household income so a median not not price rises or rental rises but this is this is interesting because sydney is the most expensive city so therefore you know there's no one going to be displaced to sydney are they no they no, leave they, here they, to go elsewhere. They're, they're leaving Sydney and they're pushing out to the other capitals, but they're also still migrating to the regions and the regional cities. So I'm in Newcastle, as you know, and there's a steady flow of people moving up here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're definitely, uh, I wouldn't say last year, but I would say the start of this year, the rhetoric around getting out of Sydney starting happening again. Um, the but- 2021 obviously it was 2020 2021 it was like who wants to stay in sydney let's just move i can work forever from home 2022 was like oh actually um no 2022 it was actually i oh, know rates of prices are falling i don't want to leave i don't want to buy blah 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 um and then our 2023 was yeah actually i want to stay close to the city i'm not sure about my work um <laughs> and you know i don't think i want to move up the central coast or north of Wollongong. like that would just you know our person just you know they shifted like this um but absolutely, they have come back to the start of this year. I think the late last year, they started missing out again. And um, they're like, actually, I don't know if I really want to live in that long term. I know I'd, I'm going to have to commute. So it's back to kind of ha- the, the compromise is I actually know I have to make the commute. 
But, you know, one of the things like of those markets is the amount of influx of younger families. Typically, that's a lot of people who make these big lifestyle moves. Like, well, you're still single, you're in a couple, like you want to just still be in the action. It's like when you, when the urgency is there, when you've got a need for space and you want to get community and stable, you know, that, that drives people to go. Or maybe they're like thinking about having kids. So they're like trying to be well planned. I mean, childcare, try to get a kid into childcare in the Central Coast. Like just, you cannot get them in. Like, you know, I've got friends up there who just cannot get their kids in childcare. They've been on waiting list for years. Just, they're just full. Yeah. They're um, in school by the time they get to the top of yeah, the list. Like is that what you're saying? The- <laughs> we got a phone call. We were in Balmain and we, and we tried to put out, we tried to book our boy in six months before he was born. And we'd long moved and we got a phone call when he was three and a half saying, we've got a spot for you. <laughs> um, I remember and that's those days. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's one of the issues that, you know, when these regions or, you know, the, the demographic really shifts fast, you know, the schooling can't keep up, the child cares, the hospitals, you know, all these sort of things, the doctors. And so I think that's what... Uh, will have to happen in these places as well is that you know and i think it's going to come back it just makes sense as people get forced out they're going to start to go up to central coast again they're going to start going up to, to newcastle and I, mean, I, I do think that's good for their economies right i think that people will start businesses there'll be um but you know the, predominantly they don't want to walk away from their city incomes right to to transition up there and so they're going to try to have to do the commute and is that really the the life that they really you know you can do that one or two days Per week, I was doing I was doing that for for Core Logic, and I was uh, travelling down and staying one or two nights, and it was quite a comfortable scenario doing it that way. Um, so if yeah. you can find accommodation, you can stay a couple of nights down there. It's quite workable, but you cannot do it daily. And is it easy to get accommodation, or you know, is it cheap? You know, like the hotels that you know that's what I mean. It's not that you know. I do think the attack on Airbnb will be coming up in new south wales very soon yeah. i think it's just uh yeah they're gonna have to do something politically and it's one of the easiest ones to target so i think there'll be an airbnb tax similar to victoria very quickly in yes. new south wales um, no, i agree uh you know you know the seven and a half percent down there it sounds like it didn't you know it's kind of sailed through no one really got too upset so why don't we just and the government wants more taxes right so um, i think that's a win for for everyone there besides the airbnb owner I, I read something a few days ago about the vacant homes on on uh, the census night. How we spoke about it, we said, "Hang on, we don't know why they're mm. vacant, so don't jump at shadows." Yeah. And a, a report came out only a few days ago. Thought, "Oh, we got that one right." <laughs> so this this displacement from rental from tenants, though, is that new? I mean, we've known about displacement from a owner occupier point of view for oh. some time. We've seen it, right? But is this tenancy displacement a relatively new phenomena? That's that's, what? and I guess the fact is that they're more mobile by by definition anyway. Uh, yeah, and that's why mate, the rental market's such such a fascinating data set to 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 work with mm. because it's so fluid. It's a pure market. Um, in the past, however, we've seen um, always had access to markets that had vacancy higher vacancy rates. So what used to vary a lot was was vacancy rates yeah and you know so yeah. so when you had a vacancy rate that was fairly standard of two to three percent or three and a half percent um when prices went up too high you could see vacancy rates vary within the region or within a few yeah. suburbs away um so there's always that that you know, cushioning uh, option um that's disappeared 
you know, we've we, we've just wiped out. You've had get, getting used to thinking that vacancy rates are below one point five or below one percent are normal. They're not. It's like we're getting used to to inventory levels being below to two months of stock. They're not. Mm. So we're doing this. That's why I say, you know, I know people criticise and say it's not a supply issue. Well, it, you know, it, I think it's a supply issue because demand self. Mm. Um, okay, if you can deal with with the demand, happy days. But the issue is, I've not seen numbers like this to tell me it's a supply issue. You know, there's just not enough rentals. Right. There's just yeah. not enough properties for sale, and prices will continue to grow as much as people can afford to let them grow. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, and then there's oh, it's, it's market forces for you. But interestingly enough, because, I mean, what you're, the rental data that you're looking at is all relative, right? It's a relativity of what's advertised. It's a relativity of matching up against census data. And and so as a, it's an aggregate, right? It's yeah. not saying, oh, if you go to rent this two-bedroom apartment, you know, it, it, it is going to be X percent less or more than it would have been a year ago. So it's, it's a different measure or a different um figure, right? Because we do have an issue. It's interesting because the New South Wales government is is um, in the process of rental reforms and so changing legislation. And one of the things that they're looking at in this legislation change is um, a way to have timely and accurate rental data from for tenants. And when I say for tenants is because they've recognised that a tenant is in a uh, – um, in a position where they're lacking power, but information is power, they're lacking the access to information to determine if their rent is increased, whether or not that's a fair increase or not. Because when you look at, say you want to do a comparison, uh, a rental appraisal on a property, and you say, right, I've got this two-bedroom or three-bedroom, whatever it is, property, and I want to go out and see what's a reasonable rent to ask for that property, you go out and online and you look for the data and all you can see is what was advertised. So you're not you're not seeing what ultimately rented for, nor are you seeing if that property has had the same tenant for more than one lease period. You're not actually seeing if they've had increases or anything like that. That's not captured anywhere, and it's and it's not reported anywhere. So the state government, New South Wales state government, is looking at ways to make that more transparent so that tenants have got better information, so they can they can claim that a rent increase is unfair, and then they can go to tribunal. Interestingly enough, I think that information, that transparency of information is actually a good thing for landlords and also for property managers as well because, you know, a property manager is when they're doing an appraisal, when they're advising their their, um, their landlord or their owner about what rent is reasonable, they've only got access to the same information plus whatever's internal in their database. Um, so this is – and this is a, is a real issue whereas when you're going to buy um, a property – the actual sales data is, is available, readily available, and it's reliable, you know. And at, at worst, it's three months old because that's when it goes to the Office of State, um, Office of State Revenue. But generally speaking, it's it's actually quicker. That's it's much more timely than that, and it's reliable. So that is a so. There's two different types of rental data. I guess what I'm talking yeah. about here. There's a the rental I'm data you're looking at. I, I don't think it's as big mm. a problem as they're pointing out, and I do not think that that. Okay, has a interesting. Solu- I don't think it's going to be. Anywhere near the solution that's being proposed, because you, you've you know got so proposing? many rentals, you've got enough rentals that they become statistically significant very quickly. If you're tracking right, the trend okay. and you're looking at how prices are trending, medians are trending, 
if they're really well normally distributed and you do that, say, at an SA3 level, you just index what your last rental appraisal was by that. Right. And that's readily available here and now without any, you know, exhaustive amount of work or expense on behalf of the government. So I'm going to call it and them say, so say what? I don't, I, I don't think it's that big. I, I'm not that excited about it. I don't think it makes that much difference. Oh, that's interesting. Even from our point of view, as, as you know, when we're looking at a rental appraisal on a property, we we, we approach it much the same way we approach a sales yeah. appraisal. Um, so you're you're suggesting that it's actually that's overthinking it. Uh, to- totally overthinking. You've got um, an, an abundance of available comparable sales to get to a rental CMA in most areas much more easily than you can do a sales CMA. Uh, And you've got the other advantage of the ability to index and the indices for rents are great. So I'm going to call rubbish. Well, that is interesting. So I wonder, because the legislators don't tend to go to to the marketplace to find these things out. They tend to make their own minds up, right? Oh, no, the rental commissioner talks to me all the time, just hasn't asked that one. Well, in that case... (laughs) That's what I haven't I mean. been asked if they about haven't asked that. you that question, yeah, I mean that's that's in that's pub that's in their document as to one of the things that they are looking at addressing, um, yeah. that transparency of information from a tenant's perspective. And know you're rubbishing it, but the reality is that it could well get through because I didn't rubbish it. I went, yeah, that makes sense to me, and I'm not a data expert, clearly. So I just say it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to make, it's not going to make much difference at no. all. There's bigger, Ooh. there's bigger problems. Okay, but, so then. So it's going to look like they're doing something, but they're not really. But the the problem is, though, what their solution they're proposing is going to be onerous to the industry. It's going to require more reporting, and it's going to require some sort of central portal that can that re- this reporting can be done into. Um, and so that is going to put places as they often don't want to do, which is place a burden on the industry. But that's that's right. one of the solutions. And if it costs money, if it costs money, who pays for it? The, the tenants. Right. Probably, yes. So Ugh. this is where we get it wrong. This is the big government mindset. They just don't understand how markets work. No. Elephant in the room, man. Elephant in the room, if ever there was one. All right. Well, anything else you want to add to this discussion, Ken? Uh, no, we just need a solution that's real. No. Not moving numbers around or shuffling, shuffling paper. We need politicians Mate, who can right. really do something. Uh, and we don't have any. Disheartening. And I know we've, this has not been our most positive episode um, in the 300. But, it, you know, A, you can be frustrated when you can't afford to buy. Maybe you can't really be frustrated. Hey, I can't buy that big house on that best street. Just you know, Maybe that ship sailed. It's a bit too... You shouldn't really be getting upset if you can't own that $100 million mansion. But um, if you can't <laughs> rent something and pretty you bad. can't... Like, and you've got to be 40 people and you just keep getting outbidded for rent. And, you know, you're doing an amazing job in the community. You're, you would be a great tenant, but, you know, on paper, maybe you're not as strong as someone else, right? And you just get kept uh. putting push to the bottom. And um, and I think you just, and that that is so stressful. Um, you know, like, you, what do you do? Like, you know, when your lease is running out, you get given four weeks notice, I'm selling, my tenancy's up. And, yeah, and I, so I think this is, you know, I'd love, the rental security of one of the things that drives our prices, I would say, is just how bad we are at longer leases. At ten, this that rental uncertainty is what absolutely forces people to 
you know, pay to buy. And that's why our yields are so low. Like if you could buy a rent really easily, then you would say, well, the cost to rent um, versus buying doesn't make sense. I'm just going to rent and that would push up our yields. Um, it's just that the, the risk of renting is so large that people will just go and pay ridiculous amounts to get home security. Um, on top of that, then that is self-fulfilling because when you get that home security, you get capital growth. So that then that that whole thing just continues. Um, and so, yeah, it's so hard to well, flip the, so, this the solutions are when we don't have to find unique solutions to Australia. The solutions are all over the world, and America's got some mm. really good things going on, right? So they've got their their multifamily, which is their word for uh, build to rent. There's a lot of ma and pa small investors that own whole blocks of units uh, and there's all levels of incentives um tax incentives uh land access to land access to finance that really have created a flourishing multifamily market uh that is not just wall street corporates that that are doing it uh. so you know your average investor over there uh is building five to ten to fifteen units and renting them out with all sorts of tax incentives, depending on what they rent it for relative to market. So if it's below market rate, they get extra tax incentives. So it's a very sophisticated system that we should be all over. We should be we should know every ounce of how that works. And the second point, as I mentioned, less than one percent of Australians are living in caravan parks. Nah. More than six percent of Americans live in mobile home parks. So that might be the future. Is that what you're suggesting, Kent? Well, it's just one. It's just one of many, and we need we need the prefab. We've covered the prefab many, many times mm -hmm. over. So, you know, uh, we need prefab. We need three D printing. We need a multifaceted approach. And all we seem to do is just gravitate back to let's use the same things and come up, try try the same solutions over and over again. When the horse is bolted, too expensive to build. You can't a seven hundred thousand dollar unit doesn't fix it. Yeah, and I think this is yeah. why Chris Mins, um, you know, hats off to him for being pretty brave. The way he's been, you know, with uh, taking on the NIMBYs and the ingrained capitalism within governments and, you know, the key communities around Sydney. Um, he's just like, stuff you, I'm going to rezone, right? And so um, he's having whether a it's been, exactly, and I think that's, um, you know, hats off to him. You can't argue that he's not up for the fight because he's absolutely mm. up for it. Um whether it's the best way to go about it, you know, uh, or whether, you know, everything he says going to get approved is actually going to happen, but you can't argue with his um, confidence. So we'll see how this one plays out yeah. in 2024. It's a big story, that one. And every time I see his name, I want to see exactly what he's saying. And I read the article because I do think it's a it's a good test case. If, if this Sydney thing happens, you can start to apply those same reasons in the future in other capital cities. You say, well... This yes. is what happened in Sydney when things got really tough. Actually, that similar things could happen in Adelaide, it could happen in Perth, it could happen in uh, Brisbane, Melbourne, already pretty relaxed, but it's those same. So then when you buy and you invest, you can say, actually, we've got to prepare, and I'm holding something for 20, 30, 40 years. I've got to prepare for the world where things like this are going to happen. Um, I can't rely having a good piece of land in this area. It's just going to be like that. I need to know that if it's near a train station, that, that could get rezoned, could be a positive or a negative, um, but I need to consider that. So, um, yeah. But therein lies one of the problems is that, the, you know, it's, it's a movable feast in many many regards and certainly from an individual investor to invest in something, 
that's you know, a block of units or even an individual property. You need a level of certainty um, that thing that you know the ground is not going to move under you. And I was just thinking as we were talking, as a you know just leased a house that I've got uh, in Alexandria last month, and I think I've told the story on the podcast before. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'll happily offer them a, tw- a 24 month lease, but. To be honest, a lot of tenants actually they might say they want long tenure, but they don't really want to commit themselves for twenty four months either. Equally, so so you know it's a bit of both ways here. And you know, and my memory is is fairly fresh too of how I was bent over a barrel when COVID hit, and investors had to really cop it um, and severe rental uh, cuts to rents. You know, so investors. One of the reasons investors are selling out is because, you know, they're still bruised in many cases. And Well, if you owned in Docklands for the last 20 years, how would you feel? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I haven't had any capital growth. And (laughs) And you had a long period of high vacancies as well. So, you know, they're only just starting to see some sunlight. You're going to milk it. You're going to take make hay while the sun shines, you yeah. know, and it's, it's not about greedy landlords or the rest of it. It's just that there's not much rhetoric around when landlords are copying it, you don't get the same sympathy. So, yeah. you know, and it's not to say I'm not sympathetic towards tenants, absolutely sympathetic towards tenants. So these disgusting state of affairs, we've got families and, and people can't afford or can't find, they forget whether they can afford it or not, they can't find places to rent. Yeah. I think it's disgusting. But at the same time, I think, you know, we've also got to remember that landlords have not been treated particularly well, as said, with this negative gearing argument come up, coming up now. We're, we're copying, girding our loins for another bashing. Oh, I'd like to hear what Paul Keating's got to think about that. He's got a little <laughs> bit of experience in that domain. All right. Thank you, Kent. Thank you, Veronica. Car. We'll Thank talk you. soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Okay. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.